0: He was the editor of Details Magazine for 15 years and is the author of As Needed for Pain and has 12 years sober, keeping it real with me today. Dan Paris, thanks for coming on. Read the book, Crazy Stories. And just to set it up for you guys, Dan took 60 pills a day. For years and somehow survived.
1: I know it's a miracle it really is a miracle sometimes I'm still a little surprised um, because uh, I beat the odds you know and live to tell the tale and I'm super grateful for that.
0: Well let's back up and talk about that because you had this work hard play hard mentality kind of not really too much alcohol but as far as your Pills. You know, you wanted to get high on your pills when you came home, and, and and go into detail about that, like how bad it got.
1: It got pretty bad. So I I was so dependent and reliant on the pills that I couldn't uh, I couldn't get through my day without without them. You know, I absolutely needed them, and and maintaining the amount of pills that I needed um, was incredibly challenging. So I was constantly figuring out how to get more. It was, it was always, I was always juggling and, and um, doctor shopping mm-hmm. and, and then ultimately getting them illegally. Um, it was a non-stop slow motion train wreck.
0: And we're talking about Vicodin, Oxycontin, right. and something that I hadn't heard of, yeah, Roxycodone. Yeah,
1: Roxycodone, right. So I was, okay. you see how I just lit up?
0: And, <laughs> and it initially started because of, a, of you doing a cartwheel, which is <laughs> right. the, the saddest it, part it's of, it, of an addiction it's ever. It's pretty embarrassing.
1: <laughs> I, I, it's, but like so many people in this country, it starts really simply with an injury or a small surgical procedure. You prescribe these drugs. So I, I injured my back doing a cartwheel, which is incredibly embarrassing because I was trying to... To impress a woman whom I had never even met, and as if a cartwheel was going to be the thing that was going to be impressive, <laughs> I don't know what came over me. I-, I was always so incredibly deeply, deeply insecure. I was always un- not comfortable at all in my own skin. I was always sort of struggling to to fit in and figure out who I was. And and this stupid cartwheel is really just an example of of me just kind of seeking attention and seeking validation mm-hmm. like so many people that i've met um that are now in in, in recovery and so i but i injured my back i got pre- a prescription for vicodin and i was off to the races it was like lighting a fuse on a stick of dynamite
0: and you had surgery too i so did. did i had surgery also legi- it was a
1: legitimate reason and, and this right. is what happens in this country people are prescribed these drugs for legitimate reasons mm-hmm. and um you know, get dependent on them and then ultimately addicted on them pretty quickly.
0: Did you also like how the pills, aside from making you feel good, did they help you with the social anxiety?
1: They did, they, they, it finally felt like I was home. You know, as I write in the book, like I took them and this, warm feeling came over me and I had never felt that way before and I thought at the time oh this is what I've been seeking Mm -hmm. this is what I've been missing and and I so I wrapped my arms around this addiction and embraced it like the long lost friend that I had been searching for my whole life and and It was in relatively short order that I realized that I was wrapping my arms around an assassin that had had come to to kill me.
0: Obviously you built up a tolerance, so take us through your routine, because it Mm -hmm. was like, Fifteen pills when you woke up before breakfast, right? That's right.
1: Yes. How are
0: so, you not like immediately lunching out on the couch? I mean, I can't believe you went to work like well,
1: that. Well, you know, I developed a, a tolerance, and everyone's different, mm-hmm. and and so um, I started with two as prescribed. Then it went to four and six, and eventually, uh, at around fifteen, that I was doing pretty much every four hours, at least, kind of while I was awake, um, and I. It got to a point where I I needed them to to function. You know, we go I go to AA meetings and identify as an alcoholic, and and I hear people all the time saying I needed to have a drink just to steady my hands, just to get right. into my day. Very much the same thing. I absolutely needed them to. Uh, to, to go. Um, but I, I would nod out. I would sort of mm-hmm. zone out. Um, yeah, I,
0: you I, fell asleep on someone in an, a job interview.
1: That's right. I was interviewing. I was hiring, trying to hire someone. And I was sitting at a table holding his resume and talking to him as I'm talking to you right now. And literally in the middle of him responding to whatever question I would have asked him, I, I nodded out. Listen.
0: At the time, did you have shame about that?
1: I don't think I allowed the shame to creep in until I was alone. The shame really crept in when I would run out and was going through withdrawal. When I was using, it didn't really matter. I, it was my only priority mm-hmm. uh, were the drugs, getting them, having enough of them, and, and of course taking them. And so, um, I didn't have time to, to kind of fully get in touch with any sort of shame or embarrassment. Ultimately, I, I certainly felt those things, but in the, in the moment, no, I didn't care. I just didn't care and I didn't care what anyone thought about me. So
0: here's a question, because being sober, I feel like I can tell when people are on any sort of drug. I can tell when they're drunk, I can tell right. when they're high, I can tell when they're on coke, I can tell when they're on pills. Do you see that? now in and people, and, and how did people not know you were high all the time?
1: <laughs> right. I, I think that's a great question, yes. So I can also tell when something's off with someone. Um, there's no question about it. I think that I worked in the last sort of like moments of the golden era of magazine publishing. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I, I think that people expected um, like an editor-in-chief of a big national magazine, to maybe be a little aloof or a little irritable or just sort of to like... And so I was able to kind of hide, hide behind that. Um, uh, surely people knew that I wasn't present. Right. And and surely people knew that I wasn't following through on things that I said I would follow through on. Mm-hmm. But I don't think anyone would have guessed. And and unlike with alcohol or or Coke or other things, there are no real telltale signs. There's no odor, there's no residue left right. anywhere. Um, you can kind of do them almost rather openly in front of people and just well, I have to take my medicine. And, and I would do that all the time, right. you know? And so it wasn't anything there weren't behaviors with respect to usage that were out of out of the ordinary. Surely, if someone falls asleep while they're in the middle of talking to you, that, that should send up a red flag.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about some of the physical things you were going through. Well, first of all, how are you not constipated?
1: Oh my God, Courtney, <laughs> you, you have, I was, I was.
0: That was not in the book, I know, but I've had it, people on here say, I couldn't go to the bathroom yeah. anymore. So I,
1: I actually had a whole chapter in the book dedicated to it. Um, I, I was a guest at Chateau Lafitte, which is a famous French winery and it's owned by the Rothschild family and has been in their family for many, many years. And uh, I was working for W Magazine in Paris and they invited me out there for the Jewish holidays. And so there was 12 people, it was an intimate dinner. Everyone was staying in the chateau. It was an extraordinary opportunity. And I wrote this whole chapter about how like, (laughs) after being constipated for like a week, they're in the middle of this dinner there started to be some activity, like
0: cramps, growing like, like movement. Up. Yeah. Let's just call it movement.
1: <laughs> and um, my my uh, my editor at Harper Collins was like, "You did a great job with this. It's very sort of cleverly written, but I, I just don't think we can. We should put it in the book." So okay. it was. You're just. And you're. I was so unhealthy. So there's that piece of it, which is incredibly mm-hmm. unhealthy. But also, I you know, I was eating, I was smoking cigarettes. I was eating crap. Weren't working out. Oh my God, are you kidding me? Absolutely not. I wasn't like, I was as sedentary as you could possibly be. It was awful.
0: That's interesting that Harper Collins didn't want that information in the book. And and it's a plus for self-publishing. The other question I had with your book, like how come you didn't go into more of the recovery since you didn't rush to write this book, you have 12 years. Yes. So I'm curious as to why it kind of just ended with, you getting sober
1: so I wanted to write a memoir of addiction and 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 I wanted to talk about how bad it was for me and how bad it gets for opiate addicts and I wanted to paint a, a very honest and and clear portrait of what that looks like um, my recovery is obviously the most important thing in my life and, and I became a dad 92 days after I got mm-hmm. sober. And so I would now I think like to write about being a sober dad and about yeah. fatherhood and how important fatherhood has been to me. I have three sons. And so I think there's more to come. Okay. But I very consciously made the decision to just keep it about the addiction.
0: Okay. Yeah. Cause I mean, I think I was like, wait, I want more, <laughs> which is great, right? Which is great. But that's leaves the door open for part two. So let's tell everyone your bottom, like, cause you, you didn't really go to full on rehab.
1: I did not. I did not. I was, I was, it it felt like one long consistent bottom. I would drop pills on a dirty bathroom floor and they would splash in a puddle of god knows what and I would not hesitate to pick them up and put them in my mouth. I drove down to Tijuana and bought a thousand pills illegally and smuggled them back across the border. I have put pills in my mouth and what while being in like a bay about to watch someone go water skiing and swallow them with bay water with gasoline and diesel and all other things from idling boats i would nod off i would smoking and i would wake up and there would be burn holes in bed sheets and sofa cushions it it was it was it was horrible. I went once to try to buy heroin here in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and got chased by a one-legged drug dealer who I presumably thought I was a cop. Um, I was miserable and and so it was one long sustained low. But it was it's a high low story because I was living this life. I had all of these amazing perks. I was the editor in chief of a magazine for a company called Condé Nast, which famously lavished perks on their executives. And I was traveling first class. I write a story in the book. um, Airplane highs were the best highs because No one would ask you what's wrong with you. You could doze off, nod out. You were sitting in the dark. There were movies if you wanted to watch them. I took a bunch of pills. I settle into my chair. I'm excited. And Dr. Drew comes and sits in the chair (laughs) next to me. And I was convinced for this whole flight that he knew I was high. Um, The bottoms were low and just steady. And I got to a point where I was desperate to stop. But here's the thing. And we, we know this. You can't do it alone. I was mm-hmm. trying to do it alone. I would try to detox on my own. I would make it a couple of days, maybe three at the most, white knuckling it, going through the the symptoms of withdrawal, uh, and then I would I would dive back in. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I I can't relate totally to the the needing the pills like physically, but I did go to Tijuana and I did have chronic pain, and I would put the. Hundred pills of Somas in this bra, hundred mm-hmm. pills of, of Vicodin in this bra, and come back across the border. And, and thankfully, I mean, we're so lucky that we didn't get in trouble with the law
1: uh, for that. Beyond lucky. I, I also, I also would f- call prescriptions in. I would pretend to be a doctor. I don't think you can do this anymore, anymore. Yeah. But I would phone in a prescription for Vicodin. I mean, that's like surely that's a felony.
0: Right. You definitely put like. I mean. So we can relate in the sense that I have have just had this book come out too. Mm -hmm. And um, what do you say to people who are like, why did you put all that bad stuff like in there? It's so not flattering, but it's like, you have to tell those stories tell so those people stories. can relate. I,
1: I, you're absolutely right. I want people to relate. I want people to identify. I want people to see how bad it gets. I also think that um, while there's certainly nothing funny about addiction in any way, shape, or form, once you're in recovery, you know, if you go to any sort of twelve-step meeting, you actually will hear people laughing at some right. of these things. And I tried to bring a little levity to it. And again, I want to be really clear: like, mm-hmm. there's there's zero that's funny about addiction. But right. I, I now am able to look back on some of these stories and talk about them with a little bit of like, whoa, this was nutty.
0: And I know alcohol wasn't really your thing before, but when you decided to get sober from pills, you quit that as well?
1: I did. So okay. I I was never a huge drinker. I identify as an alcoholic. I, I When I share in meetings, I say, hi, I'm Dan. I'm an alcoholic. Um, and so um, I'm an alcoholic but I was never just a huge drinker I certainly had my moments and it wasn't pretty the moment I found these pills that that was it for me and that sort of like awful love affair mm-hmm. began for me um, but when I got sober in in 2007, I you know you got talk. sober and I abstained from everything
0: and what did? You know what were your initial thoughts about becoming sober? Because a lot of people who watch this are newly sober, mm-hmm. and it sucks in the beginning. <laughs> <laughs> right. It did for me, anyways. So g- give them hope. Or what did you go through?
1: You know, I was so ready to be sober. I it, I knew that I was going to die otherwise. I OD'd a number of times, and it's tr- just truly a miracle that that I am here to tell this story and to talk to you today. Mm-hmm. Um, Keep coming back, is what I would say. You know, there's so many trite things that, you know, slogans and things that we hear in recovery One day at a time, keep coming back, wait for the miracle, all of these things. It's all true. Um, And so I think you you just fake it till you make it and keep coming, Mm -hmm. go to a meeting and um, let your feet take you there because it's incredibly, incredibly important. You can be miserable. You may even still be drinking or or using while you're doing it. You know, just go to meetings, listen and get your hand up and speak honestly
0: and yet there's so much taboo about talking about it in radio tv and yeah. and film and press and internet and all that and i i really like hate that I, you know, I, I try to talk about it in a very general way, but I think that there's so much from a 12-step meeting and the 12 steps that everyone should be doing in their life. I do, too. I wish we didn't have to keep it such a secret. I do,
1: too. And I try to be very general about it. I, I mention it at the right. very end of my book, but want to be very respectful to the program. I think the, the, but I think, I think there's such a stigma associated with alcoholism and addiction mm-hmm. and, and oper- Programs like this and others, I think, are, are helping normalize that. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons I wrote this book was to help destigmatize right. opio- opioid addiction, to help explain to people what it looks like. And now look, my, uh, mine is just one story, you know? But this, this addiction will impact anyone and everyone. I happen to be a media executive. It can be anyone. It's the great equalizer. Mm-hmm. It, tr- it truly is.
0: For sure, and and I um, relate with you as well. That I feel like my children, because they came very early on in sobriety. I was pregnant at eight months sober, and I feel like they are the blessings of sobriety. And obviously, you want to. It's so great you're going to be a present dad for your. three kids. I
1: am. And then my children have only ever known me as a sober dad. And that is the great blessing of this program for me and of my sobriety. Mm -hmm. And so um, I am super present for them. But I, I never was in my life until I got sober and me getting sober and me becoming a father basically happened at the same time right. so I I view the birth of my oldest son as my rebirth in many ways yeah. and so I'm super present for them and and while there are certainly things they're too young to read this book obviously but and there are certainly things in there that they are going to be so embarrassed by it's <laughs> so
0: crazy because I took my kids to school today and we were talking about my book and I told them you guys can't read it until you're 18 as I said there's you know some unflattering stuff in the first two chapters and I said well can we just read from chapter?
1: three on. <laughs> yeah, mom- but
0: the fact that you had all these stories in there like you're present now and their whole lives like just this was a part of your history from back then and
1: that's right this has been my journey to to fatherhood and um which is why I think I would really like to write about fatherhood and Mm -hmm. and kind of wrap recovery into that (laughs)
0: because there are days where your kids are on your nerves and you're like "Ah!"
1: oh listen (laughs) I'm, I'm hardly a perfect dad you know there's no question about it and I get annoyed by my kids you know just like any anyone does but um I I it's the greatest joy i've ever mm-hmm. known you know but yeah there are things in my book that they're going to eventually read also maybe when they're 18. right um that they're going to just be like oh man did you have to write this
0: um did your mom read it
1: yes my mom okay. factors into the book as well and and um was there with me and as i was withdrawing and detoxing and and uh, really helped you know as my whole family did um to to help me, you know, get on this path to recovery, my mom read the book. My mom loved the book. My mom's incredibly, incredibly proud. Mm-hmm. Um, and my mom, you know, looked at me about two months after I got sober and said, "Like, welcome back. Like, I, I see you again." Yeah. And so she's just so grateful that I'm still here.
0: All right. Well, we usually end with your tip. To, sober, uh, you know, to newly sober people, but you said keep coming back, which is also my advice. So just end with what is your favorite thing about being sober?
1: Gratitude. I, I will find time to be grateful. I can be having a horrible day. I can start to feel sorry for myself. I can start to compare myself to other people and, and, and then I'll take a minute and I'll find some time for some gratitude and it's a game changer.
0: Yeah, it definitely shifts your perspective. All right, Dan Paris. His book is As Needed for Pain. Check it out. Definitely if you're abusing pills out there, I think this is a, a great book that you should read. And thanks so much for keeping it free oh with me. Oh my God, thank you
1: so much and for
0: having see me. see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to Keeping It Free. Conversations on Recovery, which is produced by KTLA and EverTalk TV. We would love for you to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And to see video versions of my interviews, head to ktla.com slash keeping it free find me on all of my social media at Courtney Friel. Have a great day.